Yoto Ofa, and welcome back to the Tokyo Kamea podcast. And it's been a long time, it's been over a year, and I'm so glad to be back. I have thoroughly enjoyed、uh, meeting some of you and、uh, discussing the podcast with you. And thank you for just hanging in there for the last year. I want to,、um, I want to just recognize some of the,、uh, our regular listeners. Uh, first and foremost, I want to just give a shout out to、uh, one of the podcast supporters all the way in Japan, Mevina Liu Fao and his wife, the lovely Napua and their beautiful two girls.、Uh, thank you, Mevina. I know you've been listening since the very first episode, and、uh, it was nice to see you in California.、Um, and just,、uh, I promised you that I would give you a <laughs> shout out. And also, just to thank you for listening, I greatly appreciate it. Also, a shout out to Linley Latu in New Zealand.、Uh, Linley, thank you so much for the booklet that you sent me, your genealogy in、uh, Mataika, because that was、uh, so cool. And, and I printed it out actually and made a copy for my mom,、uh, since her mother is from、um, Mataika. And、uh, we noticed that in the book,、uh, it mentions the name of my grandmother's brother. Aisea、uh, Havea. So that was really cool to see. Again, thank you so much for、uh, supporting the podcast. And then I want to also give a shout out to、uh, my cousin, Benjamin Work.、Uh, Benjamin, also in New Zealand,、um, he recently just did his、uh, ancestry、uh, DNA test, and、uh, it turns out that we're related.、Uh, I kind of suspected that because I do remember my grandfather. Uh, introducing me to his mom's sister here in、uh, Utah. And also,、uh, I, and I, I do remember that my、uh, grandfather said that she was、uh, family from Koloa. And so,、uh, always awesome to make those kind of connections with、uh, people that you, you've always known, but、um, even、uh, much better when you find out that you're actually、uh, related by blood. So, Uh, thank you again,、uh, Benjamin, for always supporting the podcast and giving me that gentle nudge to,、uh, get, to get my ass on the mic and start recording the last、uh, several episodes of、uh, Mariner's book. I also want to give a shout out to,、um, gosh, there's been so many people, but、uh, the Kalapus out there that are listening to the podcast,、uh, that's really awesome. Thank you so much for listening. Um, and it's even nicer when I run into you in person and we get to talk about、uh, the podcast.、Um, and so, yes, it's been over a year. It's been a crazy year, but、um, I'm glad that I'm finally back、uh, on my mic and getting this all set up so that we can knock out the last couple of episodes. I originally thought that there was only enough content for. Uh, one, at least one or two episodes, but it looks like we're probably going to have about four or five because there's still a lot of stuff that happens after、uh, Ulukalala takes over、uh, Vava'u. And so, you know, we got to find out what happens after that. And then what happens to Mariner? Is he going to go home?、Uh, those are all the things that we are going to uncover in the next couple of episodes of the Tokyo Kamea podcast. Go!
So I'm monitoring uh, my social media and the Tokyo Kamea IG page, and I see that a lot of you are chiming in and you're excited for the episode. So uh, I'm. This makes me even more uh, excited, and um, I'm very incentivized now to really get these episodes out. So thank you again for your support. And、uh, let's do a quick recap. Actually, this recap will be really fast because the only thing we really need to know is that、uh, Ulukalala has established his authority in Vavau. And、uh, in the last episode,、uh, he called a fono to be、uh, held in Makave. And so、uh, all of the warriors of Vavau and all the warriors of Haapai who were a part of Ulukalala's. Uh, troop, if that's what you want to call them, were all to meet in Makave,、um, and they were going to do this fono. And then, just a quick reminder of what a fono is: a fono is a public gathering,、um, and this is where、uh, the chiefs and、uh, the lower chiefs.、Um, this is where they would go and receive instruction, I guess you could say, from the higher ups, or they would discuss.、Um, Specific issues that are, you know, happening in the island at the time,、um, and trying to find a solution to some of these issues.、Um, and Mariner gives some examples in his book.、Uh, there was a fono for the repairing of a canoe, and so a, a fono was held to dole out all of the different responsibilities and、um, things like that. So. And so at this fono in Makave, it was actually, you know, it was expected that this was going to happen, as,、uh, you know, this is the turn of a new administration, I guess you could say. And so,、uh, really, nothing unusual about it.、Um, and this is where Ulukalala was going to organize what his、um, administration would look like in Vavau. Would it incorporate, you know, some of the Vavau warriors and some of the Vavau chiefs? Or is he strictly going to、um, have his own men occupy those types of positions? And so those are the kind of important matters that they would、uh, discuss at a fono. And so at the fono, they were sitting in a kava circle, and、uh, in the kava circle were the chiefs of Ulukalala and also the chiefs of Vavau. After the first round of kava was distributed, Ulukalala ordered the capture of the Vavau chiefs. Mariner says instantly, all the chiefs and the warriors that had been particularly active against him in the late war were seized by the men previously appointed. Their hands were tied fast behind them, and they were taken down to the beach, where, with a club, several were immediately dispatched. Some fled to Tangatapu, and some fled to Fiji. Mariner continues. And the remainder were reserved till the afternoon for what is considered a more signal punishment, namely to be taken out to sea and sunk in old leaky canoes. This transaction seemed to show how little was to be trusted to the honor of Finau, and how well founded were the suspicions of those Vavau chiefs, who had said that no reliance was to be placed in him, and that there was little doubt but that he would take an early opportunity. Of exercising his revenge, what the Vavau chiefs didn't know is that prior to the fono, 
Ulkalala sent word to Tupotoa in Haapai to be on standby because it was about to go down in Vava'u. He had heard that the Vava'u chiefs were conspiring against him. Let's talk about the Vava'u chief Kakahu. Merner says, Like most great warriors, Kakahu was always, according to the Fiji practice, upon his guard against treachery. They had therefore resorted to stratagem on this occasion. My services were required as the means, for I was present at the consultation of Finau and his chiefs upon the subject, and I consented being informed that the king's intentions were merely to confine him as a prisoner till some part of his conduct were examined into. And had it not been for the part which I was appointed to act in the business, Two or three no doubt would have been killed and several wounded in the attempt. Kakahu was not at the Fono, so he actually stayed in his home. And so a plan was uh, drawn up to go and capture him in his home. And so Mariner and a few of Ulukalala's warriors went to Kakahu's residence and offered him kava. And so the plan was Mariner was going to sit next to him and ask him if he could inspect his spear. Kakahu's spear was remarkable because it was fashioned from the bones of a stingray tail. So that was the tip of his spear. And so Mariner says, I could take this liberty better than anyone else as I was more or less acquainted with him. And being a foreigner, my curiosity would appear more plausible and less subject to suspicion. Having got it in my hands, I was to throw it away. And this was to be the signal for the seizure. So they go to Kakahu's home. They offered him the kava. Mariner sits next to him. Mariner is participating in all this, okay? And so he inspects the spear and then he throws it away, which was the signal uh, for the warriors to capture Kakahu. Mariner says, He sprang from the ground like an enraged lion and burst away from them repeatedly with such prodigious strength that it was with the greatest difficulty they could bind and secure him. Then they took their prisoner down to the sea coast. Now, Kakahu was one of the badass warriors of Vava'u. Um, and some of you may be asking why he wasn't present at the Fono. At this time, Kakahu was ill. And Mariner initially thought that he had tuberculosis. Um, and the reason why he thought that is because when Captain Cook was there on his third voyage, one of his men had tuberculosis while they were in Tonga. And so... Uh, that spread to some of the islanders. However, in uh, Paul Dell's book, which is the book I'm using to cross-reference with uh, Mariner's account, uh, he suspects that Kakahu had yaws. And so yaws is a type of syphilis um, because he doesn't think that Kakahu would have been able to do all of that if he, had, um, if he actually had tuberculosis. Let's continue. So all the prisoners that uh, Ulkalala wanted to seize were all brought to the sea coast. And Mariner says this happened around 8 to 10 o'clock in the morning. Okay, And in attendance at the shore was Ulkalala, all the Hapai chiefs and warriors, a Vava'u chief by the name of Paunga, a relation and a confidant of Ulkalala, and the rest of the Vava'u chiefs and Matapules who were all unarmed. Around noon, the prisoners were placed in a large canoe, lashed hand and foot, pushed out to the sea under the command of Lolohea Malohi, an adopted son of Finau Ulkalala. There were 18 prisoners altogether, 
and before they arrived on the shore to be boarded on the canoe, they begged to be killed by having their brains knocked out with clubs rather than be drowned. Three were immediately dispatched on the spot, and the rest begged to be taken to a small island nearby to be executed. Nine were executed as soon as they arrived on the shore of this small island, and three were killed in the canoe. The remaining six chose to die by drowning and to deny Ulukalala the honor of having them beg for their lives. They were put into two separate canoes, three in each, and then left to drown as the water started to fill the canoes. Okay, let's pause right now and just talk about what's going on. Are we really surprised? Really? Um, you know, when I read this part, I was not surprised given the past actions of uh, Ulukalala, right? And so I think this is completely right in line with his character. And I think because he has a history of, you know, treacherous acts and even... Uh, participating in the death of Dupo Niua, who was his half-brother, for one thing, and also was really loved by the people of Ava'u. Um, we've seen a pattern of treachery from him. And so I'm really not surprised when I read this part. Now let's talk about Mariner, because we are starting to see uh, cases where he is actually participating in some of these treacherous acts, okay? So uh, in the case of Kakahu, he participated in that. And then in future episodes, we're going to be looking at some other incidences where he was directly involved in the killing of Tongan people. And he goes to great lengths in the books to justify his actions. And so I think that deserves a little bit of scrutiny, and let's take a closer look at that when we um, get to that point in the book. Okay, let me make just a quick correction here, because I am looking up uh, what YAWS is, Y-A-W-S. Um, it is a type of a skin inf infection. It kind of looks like bala, and um, it is caused by the same bacteria that causes uh, syphilis. And so, no, um, I am mistaken if I had insinuated that Kakahu had syphilis. That is not what I meant. Um, that is what Paul Dale says in his book. But uh, just a little Google search uh, gave me a lot of information on what YAWS is. It's one of the diseases that uh, was eradicated by the introduction of antibiotics. And so it is extremely rare in different uh, parts of the world, but there are some countries that still uh, are affected by yaws. Okay, let's move on to the story. So, we are at the shore and an execution is taking place. 18 of Vava'u's finest warriors were rounded up to be executed. Three of them were executed right there on the spot. And then nine wished to be taken to a nearby island to be executed far away from the view of the onlookers. And six decided to meet their fate in the leaky canoes. And that's where we are at right now in the story. So the remaining six were divided into two canoes, three prisoners in each. 
Three of those prisoners were great Vava'u chiefs. Their names were Naufahu, Pupunu, and Kakahu. While they were taken out to the sea to meet their fate, um, Naufahu, Mariner records the conversation going on between the three chiefs. Naufahu observed to Pupunu that it would have been much better if they had never made peace with Finau, and to a certain degree, he upbraided Pupunu for not having followed his advice in this particular. To this, Pupunu replied that he did not at all regret the late peace with Finau, for being his relation, he felt himself attached to his interests, and as to his own life, he thought of it as no value since the king did not think his services were worth having. Now, Fahu revealed on the canoe that he had killed a Ha'apai woman when he had traveled to Makabe for the Fono. And he realized that he still um, harbored an uncontrollable rage towards the people of Ha'apai and that this rage will be to his detriment. Uh, but in his mind, this act was weak, yet better than no revenge at all. Naufahu lamented that had Pupunu had not repaired to the Fiji Islands when peace was first made, he would have preserved his life. As to his own safety, he only lamented that he was not about to die in an honorable way, and Pupunu expressed the same sentiments. Kakahu's only regret was that he didn't take out more of Ulukalala's warriors. Pupunu did regret that his infant son would be left alone and unprotected. But he called out to a young chief on the large canoe, Talo, to take care of his son. And Talo made a promise that he would fulfill his obligation. I forgot to mention this interesting fact, but this kind of just gives you an idea of how big the Kalia was in Tonga. Okay, And so they had taken out a Kalia to the ocean and they were able to uh, fit two of the small canoes in it, the leaky canoes, okay? These are the ones with holes that are going to be used to drown um, the remaining warriors. But they were able to fit that on the canoe, and so they are out in the ocean, and they are standing in a large canoe and watching all of this happening. Okay, so from the book, Naufahu lamented the sad disasters of that day, saying how many great and brave men were dying an ignominious death who sometime before were able to make the whole army of Finau tremble. He lamented, moreover, that he had never retreated from his enemies, and wished that on such an occasion he had faced about, however inferior in strength, and sold his life at a high price, instead of living a little longer, to die thus a shameful death. He earnestly requested them to remember him in the most affectionate manner to his wife. Kakahu swore heartily at Finau and at all the chiefs of Ha'apai, cursing them in the most bitter manner, and their fathers for begetting them, and heaping maledictions upon their generation. He went on in this manner, cursing and swearing at his enemies, till the water came up to his mouth, and even then, he actually threw back his head for the opportunity of uttering another curse, spluttering the water forth from his lips till it bereft him, forever of the power of speech wow what a scene can you imagine if that was like in a movie um and you know these vava'u warriors defiant to the very end it's that typical vava'u taifieto 
Mariner noted that it took 20 minutes for the canoe to completely submerge. So this was like a slow death. And I mean, how horrible would that be? Especially warriors of this stature, of, of this prominence, and so respected and loved. And sadly, this is how they met their end. From the book, Apopunu and Naufahu were highly respected and admired by the Vavau people, which no doubt caused the king to be jealous of them, lest their power should ultimately annihilate his. Kakahu, he certainly was not so much famed for his benevolence as for his prodigious strength and great personal courage. Yet still, he was much beloved and respected. Several of the Englishmen were much indebted to him, as well as the other two for several acts of kindness. The widows of the executed warriors petitioned Ulkalala to grant them leave to perform the usual rites of burial on behalf of their deceased husbands, which he agreed to. Mariner says, They accomplished the ceremony with every mark of unfeigned sorrow and regret. When the last affectionate remembrances of Naufahu was made to his widow, she appeared greatly moved, for though she scarcely wept, her countenance betrayed marks of violent inward agitation. She retired to her house and, arming herself with a spear and club, went about to seek for the other widows, who had lost their husbands in the same way and urged them to take up arms, as she has done, and go forth to revenge their husband's death by destroying the wives of Finau and his principal chiefs. Finding at length that none of the others were willing to follow her example, she was obliged to give up the design altogether. It was suspected that Finau would have been very angry on hearing her intention, but on the contrary, he praised it much and approved of it as being not only a meritorious act of bravery, but a convincing proof that her affection of her deceased husband was great and genuine. After this transaction, all of the Vava'u chiefs paid remarkable attention to Finau, not falling to send him his frequent presents of Gava, Ngatu, etc. And this they were more anxious to do, as being the richest men in the island, they were apprehensive that in case their conduct displeased Finau, he would form another conspiracy against them, with a view to deprive them of their possessions, for they now by woeful experience that he was not a man to be trifled with, and that his honor was not safely to be trusted to. At this point in the story, Fina Ulkalala has successfully removed all of his enemies uh, from Vava'u. At the same time, all of the surviving warrior chiefs of Ava'u submitted to Finau Urukalala. And so, at this point, there was uh, peace in all of Ava'u and also in neighboring Ha'apai. But in Tongatapu, there was still a lot of um, infighting going on between different forts and different chiefs. At this point in the book, we're looking at the year 1808. And this chapter is called Mariner Becomes a Chief. One of Finau Urukalala's men was a chief by the name of Mahepuku. Mahepuku had a large plantation in Hapai, and he wanted to go back to Hapai and retire at his plantation. He also had a beautiful plantation in Vava'u named Mata'uto. The plantation was a mile and a half long and half a mile wide 
and it ran down to the water's edge. The plantation was located on the western side of Avau, and it was well known amongst the Avau people. Because it was associated with legends, it was filled with all types of flowers, namely the siale, and also had toa trees, tamanu trees, and was famed for yielding much fruits, breadfruit, coconut yams, and a type of fish called ulukau. Mahipuku wanted to retire to his plantation in Hapai, and he gave Mata'uto as a present to Fina Ulukalala. Merner says, Having now nothing particular in which to employ myself, the war being at an end, I begged of the king to give up his plantation to me, that I might amuse myself by seeing it properly cultivated. To this the king, after a little hesitation, consented. I requested the favor that I might be exempt from all taxes, that no chief might despoil this plantation under pretext of levying any species of contribution. And this exemption, I observed, would be no more than what was consistent with the Tongan custom, which exacts no contributions from foreigners, unless indeed it be some sacred occasion as the ceremony of Inasi. To this also the king gave his assent upon mutual agreement that the whole plantation was to be considered at Finau's service, as being the father and protector of me, but that he would not take anything nor trespass upon it in any way without my consent. I was to regulate everything regarding it just as I pleased, and was henceforth to consider it as my property, together with all the persons who worked on it, consisting of thirteen men and eight women. To these persons the king gave orders that they should pay the same attention and respect to me as to himself or their former chief. He moreover informed the matua, or overseer, that he had invested me with full power to dispatch any of them with a club that failed in their duty, or neglected in any respect to show proper attention to their new master. To this in the usual form, they all returned thanks to the king for the new chief he had been pleased to appoint over them, and expressed their hopes that they should never deserve punishment by any want or respect towards the stranger chief. As soon as I entered upon my new possessions, I gave orders to get ready a large bell of ngatu, which I sent to Finau as a present. So Mariner now has his own plantation. He has his own people working for him. He had full control of his residence and what he wanted to do with it and how he wanted to pay taxes and tributes so he's actually doing pretty good for himself a month later after moving into his new residence uh, there was a report of a dead whale that drifted onto a reef nearby and so mariner along with some of the other chiefs uh, hopped on their canoes and went over there to check it out and the reason why they went is because whale teeth was very uh, valuable in the Pacific during that time, and especially like in Fiji. And so that trade, and even between uh, Fiji and Samoa, there was a lot of trade of whale ivory. Whale ivory was used in Tonga as necklaces, but also used as decorative inlays and clubs, and also in the headrest, uh, what they call in Tonga la Kali. Merner then uh, recounts a prior experience with whale teeth 
back when uh, Ulukalala first arrived in Hapai after um, the revolt in Tongatapu. So if you remember back when um, Fina Ulukalala took over that fort and he blew it up with the cannons that Mariner taught them how to use. And then remember he rebuilt the fort and then as he was returning to Hapai, the chief that he left in charge of the fort burned it down. And so, um, so Mariner's recounting an experience of when they had arrived to Hapai and a similar incident happened with a whale that washed up on a reef in Hapai. And so Ulkalala and his men sailed to the site to procure the whale ivory. When they got there, um, they encountered a man and his wife. They were the only inhabitants of the island. And when they had arrived, the teeth from the whale were already removed. And so the couple were questioned about the missing teeth. And uh, they were escorted to their house where the man showed them uh, the two teeth that he took from, um, from the whale. When he was asked about the other teeth, he denied that he knew anything about it. Um, however, his wife produced another tooth, but claimed that she also didn't know anything about the others. Mariner says, Fina was not satisfied with this plea and being unable to make them confess by fair means, he threatened them both with death. The man still protesting his innocence, Finau ordered him to be immediately dispatched with a club. Which being done, he again threatened the woman, and she strongly protested her innocence. But when the club which had just ended the life of her husband was raised over her own head, she acknowledged that she had concealed another tooth, and accordingly brought it out from a different place. And being unable or unwilling to produce any more, she shared the same fate. Interestingly, uh, Mariner recounts a story of how the teeth, the remaining teeth were found years later. Okay, um, A temple was to be built and consecrated to one of the gods on Lifuka. And this particular divinity through a priest wished for a whale tooth to be buried in the foundation of the temple as this was the custom back in the days in Tonga. And so the natives recounted to Mariner that it was through divine intervention that they were able to find the other missing teeth of this whale, and then they were able to bury it in the foundation of the temple that they built in Lifuka. Shortly after the whale washed up in Vava'u, a ship arrived on the northwest coast of Vava'u, and this ship came from New York. Mariner and Ulkala just happened to be nearby in Ofu, and they set out to meet the crew of the ship, which was captained by Captain Chase. Mariner had asked Ulkalala if he could go on board, and he noticed one of the chiefs whispering to Ulkalala, so Mariner suspected that the chief was warning Ulkalala that he might flee, to which Ulkalala replied, But why should I keep him? He then ordered his men to take Mariner on board. When Mariner reached the ship, he noticed three familiar faces, Jeremiah Higgins, John Parrish, and Hugh Williams. He was also met with a message he didn't anticipate. The captain told him, We can't take you, young man. We have more hands than we know what to do with. Mariner says, I then offered to procure whatever provisions the ship might want, but the unfeeling miscreant turned his back and gave no answer. Thus, in one minute from the elevation of hope, my soul sank into despair. What to say, what to do, I knew not. Besides, 
Suffering the acute pain of disappointment, I found myself in a very awkward dilemma. If the natives knew that the captain refused to take me, it would hurt my reputation greatly in their esteem, as they would look upon me to be a low-born tua, without friends or consideration in my own country. Mariner hid his own disappointment and told the Tongan men who took him to the ship that they were sailing to a destination that was too far from England. He says, everybody wandered to see me return. My story, however, was readily believed, but it seemed strange that I had brought them no presents from the boat. So when Mariner returns, they make fun of him for coming back empty-handed. These jokes were exceedingly mortifying and nothing could be worse timed. I endeavored to laugh at their humor. And by way of apology for my neglect, I told them that I was so disappointed at not finding the ship bound for my own country that I had forgotten to ask for some presents. And besides, I knew she came from a country where they were scarce. Finau endeavored to console me for my disappointment, assuring me in the kindest manner that I should go by the next ship bound to my own country. Some women informed me that the Matapule had endeavored to persuade Finau to retain me, but the king replied that I and my companions had already suffered enough in having the ship taken from them, and being themselves kept so long from their native country, and that he did not think as the Matapules did, that it was the disposition of the Papalangis to return and take revenge. So we see Mariner almost got the chance to go home, but when he boarded the ship, it was already filled with uh, some of his fellow crewmen from the Port-au-Prince were already on there and the captain couldn't take on any more. And so an opportunity was denied. So it's interesting that uh, Ulkalala, you know, didn't have any issues with letting him go. And he didn't think that the Balangis would come back and, um, you know, take revenge on them for what happened to the Port-au-Prince. And so... Can you imagine just how hard that would be stuck in Tonga all this time um, and then seeing a boat with Balangis on it and thinking that this was your chance to uh, go back home and you're denied? Like, what the hell? I <laughs> That would totally suck. Anyway, so I think we'll end the episode right there um, and then we will pick up next week we are actually going to learn about a similar incident um, of another boat that came to Tonga that was attacked but this time it was a woman a woman who stayed in Tonga and married one of the chiefs and um, we'll explore a little bit more about her story and her life because she has descendants in Tonga and so I'm excited to share a little bit more about her Anyway, um, I want to thank you again for turning into um, this episode and just hanging in there. I know it's been a tough year for all of us, and I greatly appreciate all of you who have been just checking the, you know, the Instagram page to see if there's any updates. And I apologize. I profusely apologize for um, for taking such a long time, but um, you know. These are crazy times. Uh, the pandemic and all that stuff. Yeah, I'm going to ride that excuse <laughs> until until this damn pandemic is gone. I'll drop another episode next Wednesday. And uh, in the meantime, take care of yourselves.